0: Welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah—or should I say, hostess with the mostess? No, because I'm yeah. literally getting so wide; it's ridiculous. Darcy, how you doing?
1: <laughs> My like, co-host, Darcy. Good. We haven't—I haven't talked to you in a while. I missed you. R- did you though? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I was like, man, I got used to like I talked to Sarah once a week, and then all of a sudden, I'm not talking to Sarah, and.
0: Yeah, wow, took a little bit of a. Like,
1: oh, I miss Sarah.
0: Took a little bit of vacay. Yeah, we went to Disney World, but we didn't go to How Disney. We didn't go to Disney World. Disney World, like oh. we went and just stayed there, but we didn't go to any of the parks. Oh, why? Just <laughs> so We wanted to get out of the house. I mean, it's just oh. been like, ooh, you know. Yeah. So, we are back and about ready to close on our house, and so there's just a lot going on. Okay, well that's progress. No, good times, right? Um, what's going on with you? Anything new? Uh, I just got a
1: new computer. Sweet, freaking excited! Um, I traded in my old MacBook Pro and got a new MacBook Air, and um, I was very like nervous because I d- I was like, gosh, I don't know, like. Am I going to miss anything going from the pro to the air? But I really don't think I am. And this has more storage space than my old computer did. So, um, like, the base storage is like 256 gigs, and mine back then was 128. So, I'm like running out of space. And anyway, so I got a good education discount and a good trade in. So, I'm pretty happy with it. So, spent all day. Merry Christmas to you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm growing up, man. Get your own Prezies. Uh huh. For real. I know I was like I did think about that I was like oh should I ask for this for Christmas I was like no let me just go ahead and do this because I feel weird asking for stuff for Christmas now I'm like 36 I know
0: it I my mom still like because I'm the only one that's not married feels a special Mm -hmm. need to like get me things and so every holiday she's like sweetie what do you want for Christmas (laughs) it's it's cute but it's like oh my goodness you don't need to give me she does that
1: too and I'll, like, oh, as I'm, like, making so much noise. Um, and I'll, like, say I don't want anything or something. And she'll be, like, well, I just got you a little happy. And you're, <laughs> like, like, okay, okay cool, thanks. thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, can you just get me, like, an Amazon gift card so I can buy a lot of Kindle books? Right. Like, that would
0: be. And I'm sure you know, people are, something. like, rolling their eyes because we're complaining about gifts. <laughs> no. No, it's very thoughtful.
1: It's just i just, like, I've always been super independent. So it was like once I started being able to buy my own stuff, I feel weird asking for stuff. Yeah.
0: No, I don't. It's kind of the thing. I'll just you know? give her something little to get me so that it's she can feel good about it. But right. Because it's one thing we always get jammies. Like we always do the jammy thing. Mm, um, that's good. Because I love jammies. I live in... I saw
1: your Instagram post today. Live
0: in them all the time. And I just got a couple of new pairs. So I'm super fired Sweet. up. I'm, tonight I'm recording in my sloth pajamas. Nice. I will not... Yeah, I feel like... I will not be changing for two days.
1: But, I feel like, yeah. Like, I feel like my family can always do... Like, they can always go right with getting me like an Auburn hoodie or something. Right. You know I mean? like there's always something Auburn related that I'll be like, yeah, I love that. I'll wear that all the time. So Word.
0: for reals, any kind of like sports gear, any kind of yeah. jammies, like socks, even to me like, Hey, you want to get me something? You feel compelled to buy me a gift. Go ahead and give me that $1 pair of socks from Target. I will <laughs> wear the hell out of those socks. My dad loves <laughs> socks. Like
1: he loves like those wool socks, you know, like the heavy duty ones. It's always a staple. For I like
0: him. any and all. Like if you yeah. want to get me those one dollar Target socks with the little piggies on them, two two thumbs <laughs> up. <laughs> I'll wear them because I love them. I'm cheap that way. <laughs> my my guy is like, okay, so those socks are a dollar. You'll wear them one right. time and then you'll throw them away. Isn't that wasteful? Or wouldn't you rather spend ten dollars and get a real legitimate pair of socks? And I'm like hell no. I want the socks (laughs) with the pigs on them because they're super cute. Look, they even have a little ball thing on the tail. He's like, no, 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 no. I don't like the ones that have
1: accoutrement. I don't
0: like anything. Any kind of socks I'm down for. If they're adorable and cute, it's even better. But yeah. Anyway, so main case for the day. I kind of stumbled across this one a while back and um, liked it Not because it was like, hey, this case is like super, uh, this guy's amazing or whatever, because you're not going to find that with the serial killer case. But this case ended up having a connection to both San Diego and and Chicago. So I was like, okay, this is super cool. Like, hey, who could have thought? Because I just came from San Diego, lived there for quite a long time, and now I live in the... Well, I don't live in Chicago, but I live about an hour outside of Chicago. So it was interesting to kind of hear him talk about some of the locations in and around Illinois, which I'm just now learning about. So mm-hmm. this is my case for the day. It is the case of Andrew Yurdialis, Alice. And I don't know if you've heard about this guy. Uh, the name isn't familiar,
1: but I'm really bad at names. So maybe like once you get into the story, I'll be like, oh yeah.
0: I think the okay. story might be, although when I looked um, to do research on it, I couldn't find a lot of Hmm. podcasts that talked about this guy. So um, I don't think he's one of the more better known serial killers, obviously. This guy was born June 4th, 1964 in Chicago. Okay. Midwestern guy. Um, That in itself is not very exciting. You'd think outwardly speaking that this was a pretty normal dude, but he wasn't. And his family wasn't normal. His parents were pretty abusive, His mom, Margaret, was a pretty crazy alcoholic, and she had Mm. mental health issues. Um, Both the mom and the dad were known to be both physically and mentally abusive to the children. The mother was um, probably schizophrenic. I'm not sure if she had an official diagnosis, but she used to talk to people that weren't there and said she saw ghosts and spirits and all kinds of other things. They would walk in on her, and she would be having full-on conversations with people, and there was Hmm. nobody in the room. So, most likely she was schizophrenic. Um, The father was extremely abusive and was known to be a womanizer, Um, quote-unquote. Don't you just love that term? Womanizer? Like, why can't you just say he's promiscuous? Like, why does that have to be a thing? Because is a a, a woman that's promiscuous a manizer? (laughs) No, she's not. So, don't like that term very much. But anyway, um, his mother would experience these major mood swings and communicate with ghosts and family members were very um, kind of scared of her in a way. And she used to keep a belt in the freezer. And so they would hear the door of the freezer open and know that she was gonna come um, spank them with the frozen belt. I'm not really sure why she kept the belt in the freezer, why that was a thing, but she would sometimes come in the middle of the night and spank them with this quote unquote frozen belt And so they were just, they never really knew what was going to happen with her. She was gosh, a little on the cuckoo side. And again, like I said, I'm not sure that she was ever officially diagnosed with schizophrenia. And because there was no single diagnostic criteria, um, the term could actually refer to a bunch of different mental health issues is what the specialists say now. And then as well, this can be a genetic issue. And often it... it gets passed down from family member to family member, um, particularly parents to their children. Yuri Dialis had a significant history with mental health issues that began with his mother and later it is thought that he was also diagnosed with it. I heard in a couple different places that he was, but I'm not sure exactly when I think he was diagnosed with it and when he was arrested. So obviously okay. it was a mental health issue with him that was hidden very well, or maybe he faked it. I don't really know. Um, And we'll kind of get into that, the reason why I say that, in a little bit, because there's some interesting stuff with this guy that does not necessarily fit into a cut-and-dry box when you look at mental health issues, such as the one he was thought to have suffered from. All right. Things like delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech and behavior are all all hallmark traits um, when you have a mental health issue like schizophrenia and can sometimes be genetic. Mm -hmm. And it is thought that's how um, Andrew sort of witnessed his mother slowly go through that transition into schizophrenia and then he did it himself Obviously, he wasn't diagnosed until later years, but undoubtedly the condition of his mother and how she treated the rest of the family had a massive impact on Andrew's early life and development. Gotcha. Okay. And her name was Margaret, and his father's name was Alfred. And again, I mentioned she would keep that belt in the freezer and get up in the middle of the night and spank the kids with that, which is freaking Mm -hmm. horrifying. Um, And they could hear the door creak open and they knew that punishment was about to come and so they would usually just have extreme panic attacks. His father, his father was absolutely no help either and was also extremely abusive. And this just was kind of known as a family where the kids would be physically and mentally abused and Alfred would also wake up in the middle of the night, which just, I can't even imagine how these poor kids survived, but he would wake up in the middle of the night, get all the kids up, assign them this huge laundry list of impossible chores, and then require them to work all night until they finished it in the morning. And they weren't allowed to go to sleep. They had to just finish this impossible task list. Was he an alcoholic or just his mother? um, It sounds like the mother was, and he possibly was too. There's not a lot of information about... Andrew's childhood Okay, there's only a couple different things and I heard this on a couple of podcasts rather than, I didn't read it on Wikipedia or Mm -hmm. any of the written sources that came from this guy so there's speculation that he was but I don't have any concrete evidence at this point Okay, but it is known that Alfred's teenage nephew joined the household at some point and began sexually molesting Andrew's two older sisters, Mm -hmm. Cynthia and Monica and when Alfred discovered this deviant behavior, he beat his nephew severely in front of his own kids and kicked him out of the house, like beat him within an inch of his life. Again, mm. it's like demonstrating to these kids that like life is extremely violent. Right. You know, you could die at any moment, you know, be a good kid or I'm gonna beat the crap right. out of you. Um, and unfortunately the kids soon learned that violence was the, was the norm. And violence against women was perfectly acceptable. Um, researchers often say, though, that childhood abuses such as this are commonly mirrored in the future lives of adult serial killers. So, as you can tell, hmm. I'm leading you up this primrose path to Andrew starting to get this in his system, that violence is acceptable and that violence towards women is something that should be a part of his life. At- it's This sounds
1: like, obviously it's not, but it sounds very similar to, like, Fred and Rosemary West.
0: Yes. Their childhoods. Yes. Like very inappropriate behavior and uh-huh. it it gets worse. At some point Andrew claimed and you know, his sister denies this, but he claimed that there was some sort of an incestuous relationship between his sister Monica and himself. And hmm. it begun when he was in his prepubescent years and she claims that it never kind of evolved beyond petting. Mm-hmm. Um but he says it was a full blown sexual experience with his sister being his first Is she older or younger? She's than older. Him? Okay. And they say that perhaps this was caused by her own abuses at the hands of her mm-hmm. family member, the, her father's nephew. Um, so it would mm-hmm. be her cousin, I guess. Um, and there really is no, it's kind of her word against his, and he's no longer here. So okay. you really don't get a sense that you know the exact truth. But there, the, mm-hmm. both of them did agree that there was some sort of an incestuous relationship there. Okay. Um, by puberty, though, Andrew was deeply confused and overwhelmed, obviously. Um, he mm-hmm. didn't understand like how he was supposed to feel, what was going on with his life, who he was supposed to be. Like, I get that. And I think kind of as a result of this, this rage started to build within him. And mm-hmm. he saw the violence. He was helpless to kind of combat that with his parents and so i think that that would kind of create a frustration in anyone that could easily lead to rage and then when you add that mental health element to it you just have a pot waiting to boil over yeah and in his early teens this happened when he reportedly beat the family dog to death with a baseball bat which
1: oh my god i can't
0: even i'm just like i mean you know there's got to be some serious trauma if you get to that point yeah And we all know, you know, what is it, the McDonald triad where, you know, Mm -hmm. certain things start to happen. I don't believe there was a head injury, but he started his sort of path towards this serial killer future by killing a family pet. And he told them that it had fallen down the stairs. I don't think the kind of injury that you would sustain with the baseball bat would. no even come close to looking like somebody had fallen down the stairs. And I just feel for that poor little creature. But again, it's a hallmark trait. Um, and it is thought that this sort of a thing can be sort of a gateway fantasy into killing humans. So he's kind of like testing the waters, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, Andrew was very awkward. He was quiet. He was small in stature and he really struggled to make friends and, and he didn't really fit in. Um, he was average in almost every way, though, as far as intelligence, intelligence is concerned. But it was reported that he had a speech impediment, which huh. uh, I just I can see this just turning into a huge issue for him. It made yeah. it made communication for him challenging. And he already doesn't have any kind of foundation for normal human interaction. No. He has no close friends and no relationships with girls. The guy is just like textbook outsider. Doesn't yeah. Doesn't belong anywhere. He's not unintelligent, but he's not able to fit in in any way, mm-hmm. shape, or form. He has nothing. So he is basically lost, confused, and nearly hopeless. And he joins the military to escape this abusive family life, which, again, mm-hmm. I don't think is unusual. And I don't think it's unusual for serial killers either to build the killing skills in the military, so to speak. Yeah, I mean... Well, and, and there's a lot of things about the military
1: that are kind of appealing to that kind of mindset. I mean, you have the discipline, you have the structure,
0: but then you also get to play with large guns. Yeah. I mean, exactly. And that was, I think, the primary reason why he joined the Marines. He wanted purpose in his life. He wanted to start over. He wanted to be part of something that could both give give him an outlet for his inner rage Mm -hmm. and a way for him to start over and become sort of a different person. This was the Mm -hmm. perfect opportunity for him. And with the father, the way he had a father, he kind of fit into the military with the discipline and the ability to belong for the first time in his life was within his grasp. And to have yeah. this person standing over him and yelling at him and telling him what to do, he kind of had a leg up because he'd had that his whole life anyway. So he uh-huh. was like, OK, you want me to jump? How high? <laughs> Let's do right. this. Um, he actually arrived at Camp Pendleton at the age of 19. We both know where that is. Uh-huh. We came from that area. Yeah. And this is near a beautiful beach town of San Diego. The weather, the beaches, the pretty girls—all of this. You're gonna say it's near the beautiful beach town of Oceanside. Well, <laughs> I mean, Oceanside <laughs> isn't bad. I mean, it's not the best part of San Diego, but it's not bad either. Oh, but no, it's not bad. It was just the it, living in San Diego and thinking that was what you're gonna say. No, really funny. no, <laughs> it, he's near the beaches, period, and right. so he thinks this is a sign that he is in a better place and that he is about to just. Make life his bitch anyway. Um, even more significant was the possible outlet for this inner rage that had been building in Andrew since childhood. When he arrived at boot camp, he immediately threw himself into this intense training, which you know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of guys do. Uh, yeah. for some weird reason. Um, and when was this like 1980? This is the 80s, yeah, the early okay. 80s. He was a model marine by all accounts. Mm -hmm. And he really complied with anything without question. He was good with commands. He excelled in the military, pretty much, and was very good at combat training. They said he was, quote, unquote, born to kill. And we're going to get into that in a little bit more detail later. but this period of time that Andrew served in the military was known as one of the most peaceful periods in history. And there wasn't really mm-hmm. a lot of outlets for violence <laughs> that he was seeking. You know what I mean? So right. it put him in a position where he was like, wow, this isn't what I signed up for. Yes. I'm getting right. this training. Yes. I'm able to, you know, practice things, but I thought I was going to be able to go into these countries and kill people. And I can't, he wanted to see combat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And as we both know, during this period in time, the late eighties, early nineties, there was not a lot of combat opportunity available. There was that thing in Grenada. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I think that what was available ended pretty quickly. I mean, it wasn't. And there wasn't a lot of violence associated with a lot of these. There wasn't a lot of death. And there wasn't a lot of opportunity for the Marines to go in and do what they do, which is be these killing machines. Um, In any case, he was trained as a radio operator in 29 Palms, California. Oh, my God. Have you been to 29 Palms? um, It's pretty remote. Um it's yeah. it's beautiful. I think I think the high desert is gorgeous for me. Yeah. But for I'm a lot of people there, they can't my, handle it. It's just My too, friend Kate too and
1: I went out there uh when when we worked out in San Diego and it is beautiful because you're in the mountains and I mean you can see the mountains on the horizon, but you can never actually get to the mountains. Yeah.
0: And it's, it's dark. It's re- I mean not dark, but it, it's it's very remote and it's bleak. It's beautiful yeah. and it's kind of harsh and it's Yeah. It's just it's very unique as you know, when you come from San Diego to there, like it's just yeah. a huge difference. The high desert, especially Pendleton versus the beach. And it's to India. Yeah. No, thanks. it's very, very intense. But I think he enjoyed it. Because he used to spend a lot of his time driving around in his car, just kind of hanging out in the desert, taking these long drives. I think he enjoyed the peace. That's all they do out there. And the quiet. And knowing that he came from a family of six kids and he was also a Marine. Like, I'm sure the peace and quiet of the high desert appealed to him in some fashion. Yeah. Right? By 1985, Andrew was selected for officer training. Oh, okay. Um, But it didn't take very long for his supervisors to determine he wasn't really cut out to be an officer, um the reason for this was that he found it very difficult to communicate with his subordinates and developed a pronounced twitch so Hmm. he was known to have a history of having the speech impediment so when he's in this situation where he's needing to communicate with these guys he just gets super nervous and starts twitching and he would lose his train of thought and just fade off in the middle of conversations and they think that it's during this time that maybe the onset of schizophrenia was starting to happen mm-hmm. for him and so mm-hmm. this was very stressful and it was a trigger for that Yep, possibly um after about a year as a corporal those in charge suspected that he was possibly using drugs um they did not think that it was a mental health issue he was sure because he'd never been diagnosed and i think during that period of time in history as well Number one, it was very shameful to have mental health issues. And number mm-hmm. two, I think that there was more of a tendency to attribute problems to anything but mental health issues. Right. Well, and this is also the time when we started
1: the war on drugs. Right. So, every, like, this was the time when people are like, you know, is your kid, you know... Doing the, the reefer. Doing poorly in school? <laughs> your there, kid's are doing the reefer. Deta- like, the
0: warning signs. That, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. this is...
1: This is so from I,
0: that time. It's stereotypical reefer madness. And yeah. I think that they s- suspected that there was something wrong with him, and they wanted to believe that it was something as easy as drugs. And so they were right. like, okay, hey, this kid is not going anywhere, but let's get rid of him. They started calling him Andrew Urinalysis. Because they wanted mm. to give him these. And these are like your superiors are saying these nasty things about you. So I can't even imagine how bad he must yeah. have been feeling about himself. And I feel compassion for him in that way. But in males, though, stereo, the typical onset of schizophrenia is between the ages of 18 to 24. So mm-hmm. here he is in the middle of this military kind of rather stressful environment. And there is very much thought that this was when the he started to experience his schizophrenic symptoms for yeah. the first time. Sudden onset of mental illness can also worsen tendencies towards extreme violence, according to experts. And statistics imply that this portion of the population is more prone to antisocial and violent behavior. Though I think we should be cautious about this because it's only a small portion of the mental health community that actually does perpetuate the violence. Most of the time, it's actually them that are the victims. So yes. I don't want to imply in any way that people with mental health issues are violent right? as, as a trait and just in general. It, it's only a small portion of that. But they right. do say that violence tends to pop up in some portion of that population. And it looks as though this is the case with Andrew. Experts speculate that with proper care, though, Alice might have been able to overcome his condition and live a somewhat normal life if he had been diagnosed and treated during that time, in a normal fashion, which he was mm-hmm. not. But with the training to kill and the humiliation that he was being subjected to, and everyone making fun of him and his coworkers and superiors and, and whatnot, just talking all this smack about him, I think he was a ticking time bomb, mm-hmm. essentially. And as a result, Yerdy Alice became more and more of a loner preferring his own thoughts and company and again he would take these long long drives into the desert and just kind of be with himself and not pay attention to what anybody else thought and he communicated only when he had to and did what he had to at work and then he would leave so that he could have his alone time but by the age of 21 it's 1986 and andrew finally explodes it's january 18th 1986 and andrew goes up to saddleback college campus and i believe that's costa mesa Mm -hmm. which is Southern California, Orange County. Yeah, it's a nicer area. It's really pretty out there. It's a hike from Twenty Nine Palms for sure. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I'm not really sure why he chose this area. I think it was pretty random for him. Yeah. I think number one, he wanted to be someplace that was a little ways away from where he was stationed, so that he would not be recognized, perhaps. But in his pocket, he had with him a six-inch knife. And for the next couple of hours, he walked around campus looking for a potential victim, and randomly walked out to the parking lot on the outskirts of campus, and this provided the perfect hunting grounds for him. Twenty-three-year-old Robin Brandley crossed his path. Unfortunately, she was a communications student, and she was walking to her car in the the early evening, and Uh came across Yurdi Alice Uh alone. Of course, she reaches for her keys and is attacked from the behind by Andrew, who stabbed her with his six-inch knife 41 times and left her body beside her car when he took off. So, random victim his first killing experience, I think this might have been more of his military training coming forward, you know, stabbing, grabbing, hunting, Mm -hmm. um, kind of stalking and then killing this person in a very brutal way. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that he chose to stab her because stabbing someone can be challenging, particularly if they fight it off. It's not easy to kill someone in that way. Well, you said he was, he, he excelled at close quarters combat, right? Right. Right. So So there's that. Yeah. But then and the, other aspect of it is typically when someone stabs someone forty-one times to kill them, usually they say it's somebody that knows them. Like yeah, if it's because it's overkill, right? Yeah, you don't need to stab someone forty-one times to kill them. It, it's always overkill when yeah. you get above, you know, five or six times. So. Typically, when you have someone stabbed that many times, they think that it's someone who knows them. And so Mm -hmm. there was some confusion and there was absolutely no kind of traces left behind at this crime scene. So they had no idea Hmm. who might potentially be the killer in this case. This was a huge turning point for Yuri Dialis. And he could no longer control his urge to kill. And his opportunity in the military provided him with the training, but no outlet for it. And he just decides this is what I need to do to relieve this pressure building within me. Local police immediately start investigating Robin's death, but there are absolutely no leads. Mm-hmm. And with increasingly violent urges, Yurdi throws himself into military duties to distract himself once more, thinking, OK, I- I've got to find a way to get around this mm-hmm. urge. Interestingly enough, though, quite a few serial killers, like I mentioned earlier, go through their beginnings in the military where they're able to train them and form these techniques at the taxpayer's expense to kill people, essentially. Mm -hmm. Sometimes service can even exacerbate violent tendencies, um, because there might be mental health issues that are stressed to the point of breaking with this training, this type Mm -hmm. of training. But after his first killing, Eurydialis constantly thought about death and killing. And his first kill was in 1986, And he was said to have suppressed this urge for an additional two years after that. So he killed this woman in 1986 and did not kill again for two years, which, again, may not necessarily be like this typical serial killer, but he was doing his job in the Marines. But by 1988, 23-year-old Andrew was serving in Southern California and had become very socially isolated. So much so that he rarely spoke to anyone unless he absolutely had to. And during his time off-duty, he was driving around in the desert, as I mentioned earlier, and started using uh, Southern California sex workers to distract himself from his very lonely life, which Mm -hmm. I don't think, again, is unusual. It's Mm -hmm. easy. You can get that time and really sort of scratch that itch and and not have to worry about, you know, building relationships. And clearly andrew was not good at building relationships and right. so this for him was something that allowed him to have that sexual contact that he craved but yet not have to do the relationship portion of it and he recalled later that he often sought out women that looked like his sister monica which Ooh. <sighs> horrifying yeah. because this was a person that, that shared his first sexual experimentation Yikes. And by mid-1988, things began to ramp up with Andrew again, and he escalated to murder once again. July 17th, Yuri Alice connects with a 29-year-old sex worker by the name of Julie McGee. She's a local worker in the Palm Springs area, and she often walked the highways on the outskirts of town looking for customers. It doesn't sound like a very safe thing to do, but 80s, early right. 90s, I don't think that was unusual. It is believed that Andrew picked up McGee intending this gruesome outcome um with her because he drove her to a very remote mm. place in the desert had sex with her and then finished with a gunshot wound to her head oh my gosh yeah he then drove her body and dumped her near cathedral city in a ditch and someone found her the very next mm. day so he with this second killing It was very, very different from his first one, where he picked that suburban college student Mm -hmm. that he'd murdered first. It's very public versus very isolated. And he starts to realize that the second murderer got virtually no media attention because of the nature of this woman's Mm -hmm. profession. And this provided him with this sort of turning point for him where he knew he had to focus on sex workers. Exclusively from that moment on because it was less likely to be media coverage, less likely to get mm-hmm. caught, less likely to search even for these women until days after he was long gone from the area, which made it easier for him to hide his involvement with these crimes.
1: Yeah, that kind of thing usually goes one of two ways. Either they want to kill more people that are like... Um, More what you would call low-risk people because they want the media attention. Yeah. Or they want to go this route where they want to stay under the radar as much as they can.
0: Yeah. And there are doctors that examined Yurti Alice later. Some of them believe that he may have been under sort of a psychosis, a moment of psychosis when he did these killings. Hmm. Delusions sometimes lead to violent acts. According to mental health experts and some speculate that the girls and women sex workers reminded him of his older sister, the one that had sexually molested him. And this caused him to fly into a violent rage, which filled fulfilled this delusional moment for him. Yeah. After McGee, Yurdy Alice attacked again, again two months later, September 1988. Marianne Wells was doing sex work in the San Diego area when Yurdy Alice picked her up. Uh, police found her body in a warehouse several days later. And she died of a single gunshot wound to the head. So we're starting to see that the stabbing wasn't his forte. He is now preferring the kill shot to the head because it's cleaner. Right. Less effort. All around great. So he goes, picks up these sex workers, has a sort of a sexual moment with them. Yeah. And then he shoots them in the head and dumps their body. So he's honing his serial killer skills and deciding what methods are most effective for his own personal needs, which to me... I find it hard to believe that he could have been yeah. in a delusional schizophrenic moment when he is doing so much planning. You know what I mean? And then finding ways to get rid of the body afterwards.
1: Yeah, like I can see. Like the 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 first murder sounds like. I feel like you could make a better argument that he was in a delusional state with that one. Like right. forty-one stabs, stab wounds is like a
0: frenzy. Yeah, but like this is like more patterned. It seems. Yeah, like. absolutely. Um, Authorities began investigating this murder in San Diego, but came up empty handed as well, possibly for a variety of different reasons. One of them was Yurdi Alice had this sort of rigid discipline when it came to killing. He distanced himself. He picked Mm -hmm. sex workers. He did not leave a lot of clues. He was very careful and very meticulous about the way he did things. And then, again, back then in the, you know, 80s and early 90s, DNA wasn't a huge thing either. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't as though there were all these tools in law enforcement's bag that they could pull out and use to sort of capture this guy. But April 1989, Yurdy Alice kills Tammy Irwin in the Palm Springs area and then dumps her body on a street. She was his fourth victim. So... Six years into your this is military service is where we're at right now, and he gets sent to the uh, to active duty over in Kuwait during the Gulf War. Okay, we I mean, know that's you know the whole thing with yep. uh, Saddam Hussein, and I don't believe that he saw the kind of combat that he was not thinking Kuwait. he was going to see. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. Um, he later admitted that he was very disappointed in the venture because he expected this huge conflict and ended up with this very brief sort of a thing with very few casualties, and there was no opportunity for him to unleash his violent rage. Ultimately, though, he never saw any combat, so he was disappointed, which, that's pretty scary. Yeah. Um, So now we have Andrew, age 27, honorably discharged from the military. No point during this time is he diagnosed with any mental health issues or anything out of the ordinary. Honorably discharged. Yeah, obviously didn't didn't find any drugs in the system because he Mm -hmm. wasn't doing drugs. But they didn't dig further into what potentially could be causing the twitching and some of the other things. They just thought maybe he's having you know combat related things or you know uh, training related things or he's just stressed because that's what Marines do. Right. So never did they diagnose him. Never did they send him in for any kind of specialized treatment or diagnosis. Okay. After he's discharged from the military, he moves back to Chicago with his parents. And life is pretty quiet for a while. He moves he gets in a job with his parents? Yep. Okay. In Chicago. In his family home that he grew up in. All right. And gets a job as a mall security guard, which sounds Ugh. super terrific. No thanks. He even, he even starts getting some therapy at the VA hospital nearby. Okay. So I think there was some thought that, you know, maybe he was starting to recover. I think maybe he felt like he was doing the things he needed to do to be this normal guy. Mm -hmm. And the VA didn't really offer much back then, obviously. So they didn't know he was mentally ill and they didn't give him any testing. He was basically just having counseling, kind of. Obviously, they didn't know or diagnose him with the schizophrenia. Yeah. Wow. But. By late 1992, Andrew went back to San Diego for a vacation, goes back to his killing grounds. September 27th, 1992, Andrew rents a car and drives around the area, considered the high desert, which was again, Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. He was hunt. He was hunting. Around 10 p.m., he spots Jennifer Asbenson or Asbenson. She was a 19-year-old social worker and she just missed her bus and she was trying to get to work before her shift started at a local nursing home. Okay, so this was not a sex worker. Mm -hmm. I want to make that clear. Um, So he's going a little bit out of the norm, but he sees this pretty girl on the side of the road, and she's a little bit reluctant to hitchhike, Mm -hmm. but she knows the next bus is not going to come around maybe ever because I think they stop at a certain time, and she's freaked out. She's going to get fired, and she knows she needs to get to work quickly, and so she takes a ride with Andrew. Mm. He looks harmless. He's this, you know, kind of normal-looking dude. I don't think he looked anything out of the ordinary. He doesn't have the crazy eyes or anything like that that you would think a serial killer would have. So she gets into the car. And she knows that her work isn't very far from where she's picked up. Um, And he's disappointed, but he's forced to drop her off without further interaction. I think his hope was that he would be in for this long ride to a secluded place and he could talk to her and do whatever. But he ends up having to drop her off pretty okay. quick and decides that it's too risky to do anything to her anyway. So he drops her off, but he asks for her phone number first and he claims he wants to take her to breakfast after her shift. Okay. So she's like kind of, I think, creeped out by yeah. the whole thing. I mean, I think I would be too. Um, he's a weird yeah. dude obviously very socially awkward and to have him be like oh no i want to take you to breakfast after your shift i think she was just like she's awkward she sees he's awkward she doesn't know really how to react to him she doesn't want to hurt his feelings so she gives him a number but it's not her Mm -hmm. number she just changes like the last digit so she does that hops out of the car goes into work and she just kind of hopes he's going to just disappear disappear fade into the distance and she's not gonna have to deal with them again but andrew immediately goes to the nearest payphone calls that number and sees that the number she gave him was fake which freaking weird who does that like if you get a fake number like typically you're not going to discover it right Right. away i mean maybe now because we have cell phones but like to get a number back then and immediately go to the nearest payphone to call to check is really weird and also like if you get a fake number take your lumps like Right? Like a normal yeah. person. Like, if she doesn't like yeah. you. Move on. There's plenty of fish in the sea kind yeah. of a thing. But it, he was enraged. He was instantly enraged. So he gets back into his car and drives back to where he dropped Jennifer off and waits nearly eight hours for her shift go. Oh, my again. gosh. Sitting there just getting more and more angry by the minute. And Jennifer gets out of work at about 6 a.m. and finds this guy waiting for her yikes can you imagine can no. you imagine how freaking creepy I'd that walk would be right back like, into the hospital and be like Mm-mm. yeah i don't understand this part of it um to be quite frank with you i don't want to victim blame i don't want to victim shame i don't want to you know make it sound like she's in any way responsible for mm-hmm. what happened next but she panicked essentially mm-hmm. she was tired and she didn't really want to wait for the bus and so she climbed into his car you know
1: Here's the thing. Isn't it, if this were a romantic comedy, the girl would be really charmed
0: by that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, like, it, it seems but, obvious in hindsight, but, like, this socially is Socially awkward. Yeah.
0: She doesn't like him. He's creepy. He's weird. But yet she gets in the car with him. Right. He's been sitting there for eight hours waiting for her. Yeah. Like, I think we, you and I would look, would look at this and be like, yeah, that's freaking creepy. Run. But we have the benefit <laughs> of hindsight. Right. Well, not only that, but I never would have accepted a ride from some stranger on the road anyway. I was always told by my family, we don't do that. Yeah. (laughs) And I grew up in Green River Killer territory. So (laughs) we were definitely the generation where our parents were like, yeah, you don't go with strangers. You don't ever get into a car with anyone alone. Like we were told. Right. From a very young age about these things, the stranger danger kind of a thing. Yeah. and you know there was the whole you just you're not friends with strangers you don't get into cars with random guys if i came from the generation of the you know the kid with the milk carton the first child that disappeared that was on the milk carton what was his name okay so there was that whole thing Mm -hmm. where you don't ever want to leave and go anywhere with a stranger you don't ever get into a car with a stranger you don't go anywhere alone with a stranger that was just it but clearly this jennifer as benson did not have that growing up Mm -hmm. and i don't And I'm going to talk about this in a second. I don't think her mom was a fantastic person either. Maybe her mother didn't teach her that. I don't know. But she gets in the car and he kind of politely promises to take her home. And I don't think she was concerned immediately. But he drives away from this, you know, nursing home that she just got off shift from. And he suddenly freaks out, mentions the fake number and goes ballistic. He slams her head and face into the dashboard just grabs her and pfft. can you imagine no. <laughs> how freaking scary and horrific and horrifying that would be. He's driving into the desert and he's intending to rape her and she knows it. He, and um, I think he gets her to where he's a little bit more isolated and he tries to pin her down, mm-hmm. but he's not that big. And if she's a bigger girl, she's able to struggle and she manages to get away from him at first. Okay. Only to have him grab her by her hair and pull her back. Yeah. He grabs her, chases her, snatches her by her hair, pulls her back, ties her up with some rope, and throws her into the trunk of his car. (gasps) Yeah. So by that point, she knows he's going to kill her. And let me just say there are a lot of different podcasts. Not a lot, but I've heard two of them so far. Um, And then I think she was on, like, Dateline talking about this experience. Because she obviously lived. She did not die. Oh my gosh! Um, she was the only living victim from this man, and uh, her story. She's I think she's a like a public speaker now. She goes mm-hmm. different places and tells about her survival experience. But she's the only survivor from these incidents. Okay, wow, Jeez. from this serial killer. And I can't imagine this woman had a fight. She had a desire to live. She had a will to live. She was intelligent, and she was the one. She'd seen his face. Mm-hmm. And he was super mad, and he wasn't rational, and she could see that, and she was... Her mind was instantly like, what can I do to get out of this alive? And there could only be one outcome, right? According to what she was thinking. Mm -hmm. So she's like, I don't have anything to lose. So she's in this trunk, he's driving, she manages to frantically and terrified she gets a hand free, and she is able to undo the latch of the trunk, (gasps) which... To me, it's just craziness. I can't even believe she, number one, was able to get the ropes undone, but number two, to unlatch the hook of a truck. Who knows how to do that? Yeah, for real. No, I definitely Um, don't. And maybe, you know, it was easier back then. I don't know. But she manages to get that sucker unhooked, and she's like, I'm going to get out. So she pushes it up and looks out, but the car is going so fast as he's driving away from this scene that she realizes she can't jump out of the car because it's speeding so fast the jump could kill her. So she has to wait and bide her time and hope that he doesn't kill her before she can get away. Are there any other cars around? She can't wave to anybody or anything? She's in the high desert. (laughs) She's isolated. She's out in the middle of this Palm Springs desert. And I can't even imagine how horrifying that must have been. But finally, after what seems like forever and a day... Yurdy Alice. ...actually stops the car and Jennifer pops the trunk again and hops out. And at that point, I don't know whether she was naked Mm -hmm. or just partially dressed, but you got to understand that, like... She doesn't care about that, but she's, oh, yeah. I've got to get out of here. She starts sprinting down the road. And Andrew, in the meantime, grabs a machete, <gasps> which, you know, what? because we all carry machetes in our car. He just casually has a machete? He, he had a machete. She said he had a bag of knives. I'm sorry. So uh, he clearly has got this agenda yeah. and he pulls this machete out and starts chasing her down the road. Jesus. Which, right? This went
1: from a romantic comedy that was, wasn't really a romantic comedy to a horror film.
0: Yeah, just like in the, at, in a blink of an yeah. eye. And a military truck passes, lucky for her, and two Marines are inside, and they pass, and they stop for Jennifer, and she's really banged uh. up, and her hair's probably a mess. She's got, you know, clothes missing. She's Her head's been yeah. banged to the dashboard. She's probably terrified and horrified, and she's glad to be alive, and they take her to payphone to call the police. And in later interviews, um, she... <sighs> He relates that he thought he just knew these guys were going to finish her off, finish the job. So he let her go. What? Which just bonkers to me. Must have been just straight up nuts by this point. Um, And I heard some interviews um, with him before he died that basically where he was kind of relating that story. But he was afraid of getting caught. Yeah. She, she escapes, um, and he's immediately back in his car. He speeds back to the car re- rental place and returns the car, and immediately goes back to Chicago. He feels like he's about to get caught at any second, and he is super paranoid. Mm-hmm. And you can actually hear Jennifer's interview, like I said, on a bunch of different podcast platforms and media shows and whatnot. But she told interview er, she told interviewers that her own mother didn't believe her initially. Um, and that when her mother went to meet the medical personnel at the hospital like she basically said that her daughter was just being dramatic and faking it like she didn't believe her wow yeah which bonkers yeah. absolutely bonkers it sounds like her mother was a real gem yeah police didn't have clues though they had no idea where to locate this person she basically describes this short bald muscular guy and a, a vague description of a rental car and they have no idea where to yeah. go with this right so this pretty much fades into obscurity and turns into a cold case just like the rest of them and i think they're initially with some doubt as well as to her credibility whether she's actually telling the truth and then to have her own mother yeah. make statements like that probably put her credibility into question That's awful to some degree which again that victim blaming yeah. mentality from the late 80s early 90s horrific awful i don't know how we all survived it but nonetheless jennifer survived this experience she was the only survivor Police um, started investigating, but... It was enough to freak Yordialis out. And he stayed away from California because he assumed the police were hunting him. Mm -hmm. And he didn't kill again for three more years. So he's taking these long breaks in between his little killing sprees. Um, But we all know that serial killers usually can't stay away from their dark obsession for very long. And neither could Andrew. By 1992, he was 28. And he had ended the lives of at least four innocent victims in his California killing spree. After the bungled attempt with Jennifer as Benson, Yurdialis manages to um, keep his ish together for about three years. He's living this quiet life as a security guard while living at home with his parents in Chicago, which sounds like an ideal existence, right? Why would you so ever no want <laughs> why would you ever <laughs> want to walk away from that? But by March 1995 Andrew was pretty much confident the police were, were not going to find him then that they weren't looking for him anymore for the women he'd killed in California so he can't stay away from his favorite place and he takes yet another trip back to the high desert he rents another car drives to Cathedral City And I'm kind of imagining him in the car at this point, either having a full on fake conversation with another person or one of his other personalities, or he's listening to Willie Nelson singing along with on the Uh road again. So there's those two things. And maybe it was a combination of those things that he was doing. But for some reason, I hear Willie Nelson singing (laughs) on the road again, and I see him in the car listening to that. But after driving around for hours, Yurtie Alice decides he needs a little sexy time, and he propositions 32-year-old Denise Manny. Now, ultimately, Yurdi Alice had sex and became enraged at some point after he was done, pulled out his gun and shot her in the head, just like his other M.O. on the other cases that he had, the other Mm -hmm. women that he'd killed. And he strips this one of her clothes, though, and tosses them in a nearby trash can and leaves this poor woman to be eaten by desert scavengers. Jesus. Yeah, just awful, awful, awful. Then he goes back to Chicago. He's satiated. He's had his happy time and he's perfectly content by that point. And this was his first kill in six years. And he realizes on this trip, though, that he really can't keep up the desert killing sprees anymore. He is officially an adult now and he has steady work as this mall security type thing. And he has appearances to keep up with his parents that he still lives with. Um, So he can't really go back to California anymore. And he starts to realize, I can do this in Chicago. Yay. Unbelievably, he also gets an actual girlfriend around this time. This is a 25-year-old woman named Laura Ulyaki, I think is how you pronounce her name. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call her a girlfriend on second thought now that I'm considering this. They met up like three or four times. Like, they they went on some dates. Okay. Um, I think... Yes, I think he was just too awkward to really have a girlfriend, and they met for a few times in this place called Wolf Lake, which was about 20 miles from Chicago, far enough away so that no one that knows him can see him, but he can sort of have this interaction with this girl and do what he wants. Um, But we all know that that relationships don't really go anywhere for obvious reasons with serial killers, unless you're one of the few ones that can maintain a normal marriage or whatever. But 31-year-old Yurdy Alice, he wasn't really the relationship type anyway. And with these untreated mental health issues, he probably has trouble connecting with people. And even Laura, who's Mm -hmm. supposed to be his would-be girlfriend, is not getting along with him too well. The relationship was tension-filled, and during their third meeting at Wolf Lake, the two argued. He pulls a gun on her. Okay? Which, I guess, is his first reaction to any argument. Um, but her, her reaction... God, I wish she hadn't died, because her reaction to me is kind of priceless. She starts swinging her arms at him, hard enough to knock the gun out of his hands and break one of his fingers. And I was like, good for her. Like she Beat him Whoa. up. <laughs> beat the crap out of him. But he was pissed. So, like, he grabs the gun, runs off after her as she's running off into the woods. And he's chasing her with this gun. He stops, backs up a tiny bit, looks through the trees, aims the gun, and shoots her twice. And, of course, he's had this combat kill training with guns and whatnot. So he kills her with two shots. And drags her body to the Hmm. shoreline and sinks it. I don't think it sank for very long. Um, her body eventually came to the surface and that's where they found her. But this was his first victim out of California and the first one who actually knew him personally by name. So this kind of gave him pause Mm -hmm. and concern. He was like, I need to be cautious. This was, I don't know if this was a mistake, killing someone who personally knew me. Maybe people knew that I had been with her. Maybe they would associate me in that way. So he was super worried. Her her body was actually found April 14th, 1996. But it seemed no one really knew much about Laura's um, brief relationship with this guy and so they never questioned him and no one knew his name none of her friends none of her family n- none of the people involved with this knew this woman knew mm-hmm. that she was connected to him so they never questioned him and so he's you know getting off scot-free it makes him even bolder um he waits only three months to find 21 year old cassandra quorum she was someone on the outskirts of his acquaintances but not too close I don't know that these women, either one of them, were sex workers either. I think they were just kind of bar acquaintances, people that he saw when he went to certain places. Because it didn't say that either one of them were sex workers. So I don't want to associate them with that if they were indeed Mm -hmm. not. Maybe they were just friendly girls who were in the bar environment who met him and were like, hey, this seems like Mm -hmm. a nice guy. He's wanting a relationship. Maybe I should give him a shot. I'm not, you know... What do I have to lose? But mm-hmm. July 13th, 1996, he meets up with this girl, Cassandra, at a bar in Indiana, and they drive out to his new favorite spot, which is Wolf Lake, to have a, sort of a sexual encounter. And once there, Yurdy Alice argues with the poor girl, It's probably for some totally bonkers reason, like she didn't want to have sex with him or she wanted to leave. Um, He jumps on her, handcuffs her, tapes her mouth mm-hmm. shut, which uh, just... Seems like every interaction he has with a woman is just effed up and horrifying in every possible way. But he drives away with her yeah, um, and pulls the girl out of the trunk at some point and shoots her in the head. And then he dumps her body in the Vermilion (gasps) River in Illinois. But I think, you know, we start to see here that with (sighs) each encounter, Andrew is feeling more and more confident. So much so that he decides to snatch another girl that knew him. And he connects then with 22 year old Lynn Huber. He paid her for sex two times before this interaction with her. So she knew him intimately. Then in August of 1996, mm-hmm. Yurdy mm-hmm. Alice finds the sex worker struggling to move a bag and offers to give her a ride. So they're in an alley now in Chicago and Yurdy Alice has Lynn in his car and she makes the mistake of telling him that she didn't have a place to live. So she's essentially homeless. And she asks him if she can stay with him, which, Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to make any judgments, but that seems very strange. But for obvious reasons, you know, he can't do that, right? He's, you know, this is a, a sex worker. Right. He lives at home with his parents. In any case, the two begin to argue. Um, probably him yelling at her and her trying to get the hell out of there. <laughs> right? This, Which seems like his typical thing. Right. And Yurdy Ellis finds his gun and shoots her in the head. Right? In his car. Which... And they're in an an alley in Chicago. Jeez. I'm like, do people not hear this sort of thing? Like, I'm just perplexed yeah. by that. But in any case, he wraps her body in a tarp and puts yeah. her in the back of his truck and drives her, dumps her out at Wolf Lake in Indiana, the same place where he'd killed and dumped his earlier victim, Laura, um, that he dumped hmm. before. And police still are stumped as to co- as to who could possibly have committed these crimes because he's done a pretty good job of covering his tracks. And after that, Yuri Alice keeps a pretty low profile for a year afterwards. But then, April nineteen ninety-seven, someone calls the police about a domestic violence disturbance at an Indiana hotel. Now Yuri Alice is thirty-two by now, and he is in the middle of a super loud argument with this sex worker. And she's explaining that he wants to take her to Wolf Lake to have sex by the lake. And they're like, hey, um, you might not want to go there. So they have, they have no idea who this guy is, right? But they're telling her, don't go yeah. there. Women are dying there. Women are disappearing right. and dying there. It's a bad place to go. It's right. a no-go. Don't do it. And they're warning her. And the police take a copy of this report, and they send it to Chicago, to the police department on a hunch. Um, they actually, Chicago Police Department was the one that had opened the official investigation on the other desk that had happened at Wolf Lake a month earlier, and they see that, hey, this guy wanted to take her there, so okay. this this guy is, like got a sharp mind, and he's like, hey, there, there right. might be a connection here. Now, coincidentally, Yuri Alice... Had actually had um, an unlicensed weapon possession charge earlier in the year, and he'd been released with a fine on this one, but they had compensated, compensated his gun... Mm-hmm. A few months earlier, completely unrelated to this, and now okay. they start to think. Okay, so they check his name through the system and they see that he had that earlier thing that was unrelated. But they're like, "Hey, we have the gun. We should check it against the bodies and the bullets and things like that mm-hmm. from these earlier cases at Wolf Lake and Vermillion River." Yeah, and of course the ballistics match, and police bring in Andrew, and all it takes is for him to look at the pictures of the three women that he's being accused of killing, and he just pretty much cracks wide open. And is like, I did it. I'm I did it. Um, Evidently, his, um, he takes his mall cop tie off and basically responds that he knows he's not going to make it into work that night. And starts giving them just super extensive details about the three victims in Illinois, as well as his victims in California. Like, he doesn't stop. He is just like, here it is. I'm going to give it all to you. There it is. And they probably had no idea about California. No. Um, The details matched up pretty well, and they even corroborated Jennifer as Benson's story. Her account and his account matched up very well, and it shows them that... Interestingly enough, it showed them that Yurdi Alice's memory was crystal mm -hmm. clear. Like, he's relating these events in a way that someone with a very extensive and excellent memory would... And this is interesting because Urialis was thought to be schizophrenic, Mm -hmm. right? And according to experts, people with particular mental, this particular mental condition are typically thought to have poor short and long-term memories. So for him to remember all this is very unusual for someone with schizophrenia. And he seems very excited to have this audience pretty much at his, Mm -hmm. you know, attention to, to hear his story. And he is like waxing poetic about these killings. This was his passion that he was pretty much showing them, and he was telling them that he enjoyed it. And he liked to kind of cultivate this perception that he was this hardened and emotionless killer, and they could see that he had no rational motive. He said basically that he had been agitated when the women begged for their lives. How so like they? He's trying to, yeah, he's trying to create this image that he's like this badass Marine and that he killed them all and showed no emotion. That he used his training, the Marines taught him how to do it, and he was just quote-unquote using wow. his training. May 23rd, 2002, he is found guilty of two murders in Illinois and sentenced to death. There's another trial for the third woman that took place shortly after the first trial. And Yurdy Alice. Went extensive analysis and diagnosis at that point, And that's when he received his official schizophrenia diagnosis from okay. the medical community in Chicago. His attorney has decided at that point to try the insanity defense. Mm-hmm. They thought that was kind of his best option at that point, given his recent diagnosis, but he was very functional and coherent. Right. And the jury could see that he could understand the consequences of his crimes and they weren't buying any of it. Right so may 24th, 2004 he's sentenced to a second death sentence hmm. which he's 39 by that time it seems like kind of a waste of resources he's already got the death penalty right yeah but i guess like if it's if one of them's overturned on appeal right but Yuri spends the next six years on death row in illinois until bum 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 2011 when the state of illinois puts a moratorium on death penalty cases and they basically They decide that they're going to abolish the death penalty. Uh And when this happens, California steps in and they extradite Euridialis to stand trial. They're like, hey, we'll kill him. him." Yeah, essentially. That's how California rolls. But they move pretty fast after that. And by October 2018, Andrew, now 54, is again sentenced to death, this time in California. He's in San Quentin State Prison. November 2nd, 2018, he's pretty much hopeless, powerless, etc. He hangs himself in his cell. Hmm. and is found passed away deceased so that is the case of andrew Yurdialis. wow uh, weird dude crazy case spanning several states yeah interesting history the schizophrenic element is yeah. i truly wonder whether he was faking it or whether that was true I w- whether he was having a delusional episode when he killed these women we will never know because he's gone. Right. He killed himself. Right. I'm
1: so curious about that diagnosis because the memory thing is super weird.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Um, that he did not clearly fit into that. And it's just a very a uh, fascinating, just not only like psychologically speaking, it's a fascinating case for me, but the fact that he traveled in multiple states, yeah. who he chose, the background of sexual abuse when he was a child. Yeah by his sister and seeking out women that looked like her. All of it was very interesting to me and a very, Mm. very sad sort of a thing that that happened and that generally the professionals that looked at this case later just felt as though if he had received proper treatment and diagnosis early on, he could have been a perfectly normal and productive member of society Mm. because he was capable of that. Granted, he wasn't uh, willing to be that way at times, but had he received medication and, and treatment, who knows? Right. He probably could have been a completely normal person. And it's very sad that that had to turn out that way and that those women had to lose their lives because he never got proper treatment. And the thing is, he was in the military. You'd think that they would have seen something like that and at least brought him in for some kind of studies or something to to help diagnose him and that never happened yeah. even though he had counseling with the va just incredible to me yeah and i hope that i missed, hope that it's better now
1: miss chances with him
0: i hope that it's better now i hope that the va has more of an opportunity to go in and diagnose some of these issues and that maybe he wouldn't even have made it into the marines now i don't know right. It's the fact that they have the onset between 18 and 24 means he potentially could have joined at a young age and not had the onset of it until after he was through boot camp and out, you know, mm-hmm. working. So... It's an interesting case, interesting statement about mental health issues. Uh, the survivor, Jennifer, just in, her story alone is incredible. Yeah, for real. Um, what she went through and what she did. Like, so look her up. Her name is Jennifer As Benson. You can, I believe she's got several podcasts that she's been on where she's given personal interviews about her story in particular. It's very extensive and it's very, um, she's done so much with her life. Yeah. like. It's incredible. The story of her survival is absolutely incredible. So go check that out if you can. We'll put the um, details into the show notes on this so that folks can go check her out. She's just an incredible woman. Definitely, Very very inspiring. And in any case, we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up for the day, folks. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We love it when you guys do that for us. It really helps us out tremendously. And it costs nothing for you. Yay. Um, And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real. And always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.